0: Right, good evening and welcome to the third session of MedKi this year. I hope you've all signed in at the register. If you haven't, perhaps you could do so when, um, when we finish. And, um, and so if you put your email addresses as well, so that if uh, we can then contact you with any news of future exciting events. Um, we've got apologies this time tonight from uh, John Lemberger, Michael Elliott... Lizzie Didcott, and Bill Tennant. Um, just to recap, our last meeting was on the 8th of November, and then we heard Professor Steve Field, who was the, um, used to be the chair of the Future Forum for the NHS, and uh, now is Deputy Medical Director for the um, National Commissioning Board. He told us about the plight of uh, the most vulnerable in society, how they can access health care, the homeless, travellers, sex workers. It reminded us of the fact that the average life expectancy of the homeless in the UK is now only 47 years. And so that helped us to reflect, I think, on what we can do to improve access for this this vulnerable group. Now, last Wednesday, we had... um, uh, an, uh, an excellent uh, evening that Suresh Patel kindly organised yet again at Chung's restaurant. And um, we raised £1,482 for charity, which was absolutely excellent. 103 people came and, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a really nice evening. So thank you for all that came. And just a reminder, I suppose, that the presidential charity this year is the, um, is the Carers' Trust, and they will be extraordinarily grateful for all the work that we're doing. They're supporting carers to look after not only their own health, but the, uh, the health of the carers, the people that they look after. <coughs> they provide a tremendous amount of support to the NHS in an unpaid role. So now, um, turning to tonight, it's with great pleasure that I'd like to introduce a duet of speakers, uh, both from Nottingham, who are going to talk to us about their experience of managing major trauma in, uh, in Nottingham. Adam Brooks is the uh, lead consultant for the Major Trauma Centre at the Queen's Medical Centre. Lieutenant Colonel Brooks was awarded an OBE uh, in the uh, birthday honours list this year for his work in the Army. He's not only the lead uh, director for the, um, for the Major Trauma Centre, but is also uh, a senior lecturer in trauma and military surgery at the Academic Department of Military Surgery and Trauma at the Royal uh, Defence Medicine. Last year, we talked to Medkai about his experience in Afghanistan. Hopefully, it might be just slightly different this year, although Nottingham and Afghanistan sometimes does have some similarities, I suspect. Um, Our other speaker is Nick Foster, um, who's been a GP in Kegworth now since 1989, and um, pre-hospital emergency physician He's an advisor uh, on major medical incidents with the East Midlands Ambulance Trust. He was awarded the uh, Basics Award and Medal for Services to Emergency Care in 2004, the Queen's Gold Medal for Services to Emergency Care in 2002, and the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal this year. So I'm absolutely delighted to uh, introduce Nick and Adam. To uh, talk about, about the management of major trauma from scene to hospital. And I think Nick is going to start.
1: <clears throat> Pardon me for, for drinking um, so as we go along. So, as Nigel said, it's a, a combined um, approach this evening. There's, I'm going to talk about 30 minutes, and then Alan's going to talk about 30 minutes. And we are looking at a common theme. So, as Nigel said, um, I'm one of the members of a scheme that's been running for quite a few years. I'll tell you a bit more about the scheme, it's called EMIX, which stands for the East Midlands Immediate Care Scheme, and there'll be pictures throughout, and this in fact is one just outside um, Oakham, uh, for what uh, one of our EMIX doctors actually attended, uh, about actually about a year ago. So I'm trying to sort of put together a common thread. The common thread that I'd like to sort of put through this evening is um, something called Lewis's story. And you may not know Lewis very much, but hopefully by the end of this next hour, you'll know uh, a lot about uh, Lewis. The other thing uh, I want to talk about this evening are defining moments. Defining moments that really happened to me over my sort of 25 years of doing uh, pre-hospital devotion medicine. So really it's a personal account of pre hospital emergency medicine over the past 25 years. Think about emergency medicine or, or providing care. It's not actually a new concept. It's actually been um, going around since Adam was a lad. In fact, this is the, uh, the Good Samaritan. And in Luke uh, chapter 10, verse 34, uh, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on the oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of to him. So providing care is, in fact, not a new concept. Neither is trauma. Uh, this is a woodcutting uh, from the 14th century, and it gives an idea of what a battle surgeon would actually have to actually deal with, and all the different injuries that they'd have to deal with. In fact, um, Adam would recognize this as a Friday evening occurrence in the A&E department at Queen's, things haven't actually changed very much at all in all these um, centuries. Neither is the idea of sort of um, people rushing along and helping people That's sort of a new idea. Um, and Bonaparte, his chief submission, uh, Dominic Larry, developed uh, the idea of flying amnesties. If you the concept before this was that you had your battle and then the sort of medics came in and picked up all the pieces that remained and took them off to the battlefield. And what this guy came up with was a novel idea is while the battle was actually going on, you sent in the ambulances to actually pick up the people injured, you, you took them off. Hopefully we would be able to do something with them, you can then put them back into the battle. <laughs> um, so, he used these horse-drawn vehicles to transport fallen soldiers from the, the active battle. So this type of activity was, was happening about uh, 300 years ago, so even Afghanistan is n- it's not a new um, concept to many degrees. And uh, the Times in um, 1832 uh, commented on the introduction of transport to the, the cholera patients in London, and they, the Times wrote, uh, the curative process commences the instant the patient is put into the carriage, and that 's one of the picture of one of the early ambulances around um, that time. So the concept of pre-hospital care is not a new concept. Uh, it's been around for quite a long time, quite a few centuries, and really we're just following in the footsteps. Of old uh, father time and what's really been happening um, for us. Uh, thing is, we, we do have uh, many different charities now uh, with varying skills that pop up all over the place, and all doing very similar things um, in, in all the groups. And these groups include uh, groups like, for example, ourselves, land based groups. Uh, we talk about EMIX, which is the East Midlands Immediate Care Scheme, uh, LIVES, which is our sister scheme in Lincolnshire, uh, Magpass, which is our sister scheme down in Cambridgeshire, Uh, We have the airborne helicopter groups, uh, for example, the Derbyshire, Lincolnshire, Rutland Air Ambulance, Knox, Lynx, Air Ambulance. We have local responder groups. We have national groups like St. John's, the Cross, Mount Rescue. And then we have local general groups, um, little defibrillators popping up in all these little villages. Uh, where people actually learn to use the defibrillator in their local community, just the general public. So there's a, there's a huge range of um, different people um, doing different things. So, defining moments. And one of the defining moments has been the creation of our scheme EMIX, uh, which is the We Intermediate Care Scheme. <coughs> we do have a website, and that's a website link onto it. I would have shown you the website link, but unfortunately, we can't actually get onto the link here if you actually do go and uh, Google that and look at that, you'll see some of the things we actually um, get up to because what we try and do is all the instances we attend, we try and uh, put onto the website just for general knowledge, really. We've been in existence for 25 years. And yet, in fact, very few people uh, know about our existence. Um, We have to do, over those 25 (coughs) years, Another thing things, the airway problems. This was the um, A47, and it was a car that went under an articulated lorry, and the damage it does uh, to the upper airway. The next is a picture from the A1 where a car hit a, um, some wooden barriers. One of the wooden barriers uh, became basically a projected missile, went straight through the car, straight through the driver's seat and actually impaled that chapter. So that was a breathing problem. And the, the final example is one of circulation. And this is in Melton Mowbray. And this was in fact a farmer who was uh, on his tractor and he was using one of these power hose and the power hoe, uh jammed. So instead of switching the engine off, he jumped down and gave the power hoe a big kick, which was actually dragged into the machine itself. So those are just some of the, so the airway, breathing, circulation things we've been involved with over the 25 years. There's many other examples. Stepping back a bit, in 1967, there was a GP up in Catterick, uh, Dr Ken Easton, and he attended a lorry accident on the A1 in which there was a driver and a passenger who were trapped. Unfortunately, the passenger Amputated leg and he fled to death. And that affected him like would do many people quite a, quite a lot. And he thought you know, there must be something else we could do better. And therefore, he called for a new approach in treating casualties at the scene. And so he asked his various colleagues uh, around the area whether um, they would provide a service where, if the ambulance service needed a doctor at the scene, they could actually call somebody. And quite a few GPs actually said yes, we would. So they set up a local scheme covering about 1,000 square miles, and then we used the voluntary services of about uh, 34 doctors. Things progressed on, and in 1977, a lot of uh, groups all over the country were sharing similar interests. And therefore, a national organisation called BASICS, which stands for the British Association of Immediate Care Schemes. Was actually set up now scheme which is set up in the bottom the original name was called RACS the Rutland and Leicestershire accident care scheme we started in 1985 and interesting enough to word basics we um, used to have the word basics actually on our uh, lapels and uh, the story goes that uh, somebody actually turned up to a bad accident with uh, a green stuff on basics on the front and the patient said, I'd rather have a doctor who's more experienced than a basics doctor.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, this is a picture in 1994 of our scheme, um, the rutman Less Jackson Care Scheme. Effectively, we all GPs. Uh, we use our own cars, they're kitted up with blue lights and signs. And basically, the charity provides the equipment that we carry. And you've got to put things in perspective. The ambulance service at that time were actually carrying little. The fact that we actually carried a giving set, and could set up some fluid, was something that they just couldn't do. Very different from today, but back in those days, uh, they were very limited in what they could do effectively. uh, The ambulance was a transporting system, and that's what um, they were effectively doing. So, in 1985, uh, that was sort of the area that we were covering. But then, a few years later, there was a merger of the uh, Leicestershire, um, the uh, Nottingshire Derbyshire Air Ambulance Services to form a larger service called EMAS, the East Midlands uh, Ambulance Service. And so, therefore, we expanded ourselves as well, moving out from Leicestershire to also incorporate Nottingshire and uh, Derbyshire. But then, of course, EMAS expanded even further. And they took on Lincolnshire and Northamptonshire. (coughs) Uh, So we have also expanded. So Emix now covers uh, Leicestershire, Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire, Northamptonshire, Rutland, and our sister scheme, LIVES, covers Lincolnshire. So we cover virtually the whole of uh, Middle England. The doctors on the scheme, uh, we have consultant anesthetists, we have consultants and surgeons, uh, we have HEMS doctors, we have GPs, so we have about 20 doctors on the scheme altogether. Uh, we try and provide our service, which is free of charge, uh, 24-7. Uh, we are a charitable organisation, uh, we're not paid by the NHS and we rely totally on people donating money so we can actually purchase the equipment. And these are some of the examples of some of the doctors that we have on our scheme. Uh, Dr. Neil Thompson, he flies on HEMS, he's an anesthetist. Andy Davis, he's a GP. Leon Roberts, he's an Army Major GP, and also he's a HEMS uh, helicopter uh, medic as well. So uh, we've got many other uh, people on the scheme. I think the thing is, an important thing is to (coughs) recognize the fact we're not to be confused with the Air Ambulance. We're not part of the Air Ambulance, although many of the doctors, our e doctors, fly on the Air Ambulance as, as the doctors actually onboard it. So we're not part of the Air Ambulance. The Air Ambulance is a separate organisation altogether. And people very often confuse the two uh, organisations and think that e is the, uh, the Air Ambulance. In fact, uh, we're not. We're actually very, very different. And we have a very simple aim. And the aim is really to deliver a patient safely, adequately resuscitated hospital, so as to allow the best chance survival from ongoing hospital treatment. You can have the best centre in the world. If you can't get a patient there who's been adequately treated, then that hospital stands no chance whatsoever. It's a sort of a continuation of care. So that's what we aim to do. In 2011. Uh, we attended just over 1,400 incidents. Big numbers. And in October 2012, we really attended uh, 1,100 incidents. It can be challenging. Uh, we have situations where uh, we have to go down mine shafts, in the top right, or the bottom left, two cars on top of one another, upside down, and down the ditch. So access can be a problem. And you've obviously got to unpackage whatever is down there to actually sort them out. <coughs> the scale of the problem can be a challenge. This was the Red Arrows incident where Flight Lieutenant Sheen, uh, Sean Cunningham was ejected from the aircraft whilst actually on the ground, the uh, at We were involved in that in the 8th of November 2011. This was the London bombings, the 7th of July. Uh, Peter Holden, you may well know Peter Holden. Peter Holden it's one of our mixed doctors who was actually down in London at the time and had to attend uh, the um, bus that was blown up. And that was the 7th of July, 2005. A defining moment for me was the the Kegworth air crash. I'm a GP in Kegworth, and the plane came within meters of actually wiping out uh, Kegworth. This was the 8th of January 1989. People outside at the time, when the plane actually flew over, you could actually look up and see the rivets underneath the wings of the plane. The plane literally was brushing the rooms. Of the houses as it, as it came down. Uh, the Cape of the air crash, 126 passengers and crew of which 38 died at the scene and we had 88 initial survivors. Usually in a plane crash people just do not survive. So the fact we had 88 survivors uh, was really truly remarkable and that also puts a big um, strain on the services uh, of, of the local hospital. I thought what I'd do is I'd show you a video clip. This is a video clip which we put together. It's an interesting video clip in the sense that um, there was somebody, bizarrely enough, going back in 1989, within one or two minutes of the crash actually occurring, was actually filming what was going on. So you'll see the first bit of the accident involves the first one or two passengers of the plane actually coming down the embankment. There was nobody else there. They were just getting out of this plane somebody's just filming the whole lot then of course everybody else arrives and the sort of the video expands from that the impact on our hospitals was absolutely immense Um, at one time at the queen's AE department over um, an hour and a half period there were 44 casualties that means every two minutes Another major, a uh, major uh, case was coming through. The door was opened, and another one came through. Two minutes later, another one came through. Two minutes later, another one came through, and that went on for an hour and a half. That put tremendous strain on those working in the department. And that has been replicated in both Derby and also Leicester. So the Cocos air crash, and that certainly was a defining moment in my life. The next um, defining moment uh, centres around um, this gentleman called uh, Michael Reynolds. One of the, there are a number of challenging situations in the hospital, and one of them is the management of a head injury. Because essentially what happens is, because of the head injury, um, it becomes an airway problem. And because of the airway problem, their head imaging actually gets worse. In order to try and sort them out, you're both fighting for the same thing. You're both fighting for the airway. And the only real solution to this is anesthesia. You just have to knock them out. And you actually have to then start Mm -hmm. taking their ventilation over. But you're going back to 1990. And bearing in mind that Hems London, was the first and only at that time helicopter service with doctors actually on board. It only just started, there was nothing else around. Doctors just weren't going out uh, pre hospital, you just had the HEMS doctor. The thought of doing anaesthesia pre hospital was something that um, just wasn't really uh, contemplated. Um, but I had this sort of discussion going on because I'd seen so many patients. Um, basically suffer and ultimately die because of their head injury. And the only way to do anything about it was actually to neuthetise them. And I discussed it with my colleagues about how we're going to do it and we planned what we are going to do, it. but nevertheless, the day when it actually comes, the day when it actually arrives and say, I've actually got to do something, it's not like you can actually phone a friend, it's not like you can do it 50-50, it's just, it's just you, on the side of the motorway, making that decision that this is the time you're going to do it. And there's a chap called Michael Reynolds, it was M1 in Leicestershire, and um, I've got a video clip, which I'll, I'll show you again, about him. And the situation was that um, he had very severe head injury. Basically, he was a lorry driver uh, driving up the motorway, the M1, uh, about 8 o'clock in the morning. He went to sleep, actually behind the wheel, and unfortunately, he didn't see a very slow-moving crane in front of him. And basically the whole crane complex uh, smashed right through his cab and drove him uh, from there uh, to the back there and he had catastrophic head injuries he really was actually smashed so much so they actually thought he was dead at the, t- uh, dead at the, uh, the time <coughs> and so i had a patient who had uh, severe head injuries that the only option really was to actually leave an these and transfer him in so that's what i did and I, and I took him into Cassidy, and uh, Cassidy looked. Yeah, what the heck are you doing, this you know, We don't do this. Oh, you could kill people. You could do that. Do the And um, I said, look, I had no option but to do this. I discussed it, and this is what we did. And the consultant, you know, God bless him, came up to me and said, Nick, you know, you had to do what you did. I fully support what you did, and that was it. And then two years later, I was. Um, in the reception area, it's lunchtime and we're looking at the visits to take out uh, for that day. And a telephone call came through. A telephone call came through. And there's a guy called Michael Burke. Michael Burke was the presenter of the BBC 999 series. And he said, uh, did you attend an accident on the um, M1 two years ago by this chap, Michael Rams. I said, well, I can remember that, yes. He said, right, we're doing a series actually on him. He survived and he's done remarkably well. What we'd like to do is we'd like to do the series around Michael Reynolds. And this was quite a surprise because you see somebody and then you have no idea what happens to them, and suddenly up he pops again. And the interesting thing about Michael Reynolds, he had about um, 80 operations. He was in intensive care unit for for weeks on end. And as part of his rehab, he was uh, moved up to Leeds where he actually came from. And the physiotherapist, who uh, was trying to help him get better, uh, they got very close to each other, very, very close to each other, and actually, in fact, actually became married. And you will see just at the end of the clip, uh, him and his uh, wife, to be the physiotherapist, who actually um, uh, helped him through. And I thought it was um, really quite remarkable how uh, he met his future wife. So we talked about the crash, we talked about um, anaesthesia. Um, and then the final part, really, in Lewis's story is um, one of the next bits in it the service evolution. In 1967, uh, Kid Easton, uh, he was using oxygen, IV fluids, pain relief, and that's what um, the delivery service was at that stage. You bring it forward to now, This is what we now have to do: Um, anesthesia sedation skills, surgical intervention skills, chest, pelvis, shakia, cardiac arrest, hemorrhage control techniques, advanced airway control, spine control, extrication, teamwork with paramedics, scene control with fire police, manage mass mass casualties, biohazards, explosions, stabbings, gun wounds, hazardous environments, terrorism, pediatric obstections, and burns. That is the uh, challenge we are now faced in uh, 2012, which our pre-hospital doctors have to, in fact, deal with. And um, it is now been actually recognized that pre-hospital is a subspecialty, because in 20th July 2011, uh, the General Medical Council actually approved pre-hospital emergency medicine as a subspecialty of anesthesia and emergency uh, medicine. So we've actually got our own uh, intercollegiate um, college so, coming towards the end, Lewis's story. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about Lewis, and i will tell you a little bit more about Lewis. One of the problems we've got is managing um, hemorrhage uh, in the free hospital environment. We talk about the ABC, the airway, breathing, and circulation, but we know that 10% of battlefield deaths are caused by hemorrhage. And therefore, the um, advanced trauma life support has been adapted for this situation. And we bring the, the C-bit, a uh, circulation management of catastrophic hemorrhage, ABC. And we have a numerous techniques to actually deal with that. Um, we're using pelvic splints. Uh, we're now moving into using tranexamic acid, IV. Uh, we're talking about uh, helicopters, like for example, Hems London, actually carrying blood, actually within the helicopter itself. Uh, we're using proximal vascular controls with uh, tourniquets, chest decompressions, resuscitation on the move. What a uh, person with hemorrhage requires is a surgeon, and as soon as we can get them to the surgeon, uh, the better chance they have of that person surviving. So it's really a question of loading and going, and resuscitating as we're actually moving. So this requires uh, pre-hospital teamwork and you require two or one hospital uh, and we contact them using pre-alerts and basically telling them uh, what's coming in um, to them so that they can actually get uh, the people they require together. So this is Lewis's story. Uh, this is Lewis, Lewis Godfrey uh, putting it all together. He was a a uh, 23-year-old man, I had a call at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning on Saturday, 2nd of June. It was a 999 called outside McDonald's on the Leicester road in Loughburn. A 23-year-old male, he'd been run over and crushed by a Tesco's HGV H- e- large. He'd been caught in the wheels and actually wrapped around the wheels and actually just totally uh, crushed underneath it. And his injuries uh, were uh, absolutely massive. Um... CPR was actually going on scene. He he lost so much blood that the police were actually doing CPR. So when I arrived, uh, CPR was in progress, purely due to the um, blood loss, hypovolemic cardiac arrest. He had a severe crush injury to his lower pelvis. He had treadily gloving of his abdominal wall and skin, but from the right chest wall all the way down to the right leg. So the mission management, we had a car doing CPR. We had to start putting all the pieces back together again. We had to stabilise the pelvic fractures using pelvic splint. We had to try and reposition the structures into anatomical position, start fluid replacement. We actually had to sort of package him together in order to get him back in the ambulance and actually transfer him. Um, the CPR was successful. He came round, he started breathing spontaneously. But then we had the next problems. He had a uh, crush injury to the left side of his chest. Uh, but luckily, there's no uh, tension in the thorax, and we didn't have to deal with that. Uh, but he did have a lot of cerebral irritation. Here comes the head injury again. Um, it was suggestive of possibly developing a left sural, uh, subdural hematoma. You have no way of actually knowing, you can only look at um, the examination of the patient. He had an avascular and deformed right leg, there was no circulation at all going to his right leg. So we had to anesthetize him and ventilate him in order to try and treat his uh, cerebral irritation. Uh, you can do whatever types of scores you like. You can do revised trauma scores, injury severity scores. Basically, this chap is a non-survivable casualty. But currently, he is resuscitated and being ventilated. So we were transferring somebody who had now had one cardiac arrest. Um, and our next problem was to find a level one trauma centre with both trauma and neurological uh, and neurosurgical capabilities. So we put a pre-alert through to Lottie and Kim See, We had a 20-minute uh, travel time from Loughborough to Queen's. So that is the start of uh, Lewis's story. Yeah.
2: And we'll carry on with Adam. All right. I mean... It- It's really been quite fascinating because it's quite a long time ago that um, we got approached and Nick and I communicated with each other, but we do a a trauma talk about going from the pre-hospital side of things right through to, you know, our bit uh, uh, towards rehabilitation. And then by chance, we get a patient who goes through that journey, um, and we thought it would really good. I I think in the last few weeks, he's actually sort of made national and international news for one reason or another. But we thought we'd hang the whole thing together on a patient pathway and patient journey, because that's what it's about. It's that patient from the roadside through to rehabilitation. So what I'm gonna do in the next few few minutes, and we're running slightly over, is really paint a picture from the hospital side, the trauma system point of view, of why we've got trauma systems, why they went live uh, in April this year. the evidence, a little bit of the evidence behind that. And then what we're trying to do at Nottingham, and I'm very lucky that you know a number of my colleagues from Nottingham, uh, from the managerial side and also from the, uh, the clinical side, have joined us this evening as well. who are all part of this chain of care. So, um, not quite going back to the Bible times. So uh, I got top trumped by Nick there. But going back to, uh, uh, this is uh, William just saying, uh, 1966 set up Birmingham Accident Hospital, first accident hospital, first place I was ever exposed to trauma. So I volunteered there as a 17 year old carrying bread pans, going into the, the trauma side of things. So, uh, you know, um, that was one of the first reports about trauma care in the UK. Move this chair before it <coughs> There's some of the rest. We had 30 or 40 years of reports saying trauma care in the UK was uncoordinated. And frankly, not very good. And we ignored them all. Every single one. So one page. Oh, right, we're on to the second page. It's two whole pages worth of reports saying the care is poor. People are dying unnecessarily. Ian Anderson did this back in uh, the late 80s saying, when you get to the hospital, 30% of people are dying unnecessarily. They're dying for unrecognised bleeding. 30% of people, we could stop you know, with the you know, surgeons in the room. That's what we did. We stopped bleeding. If we don't recognise it. We couldn't do anything about it. But we ignored that one as well. So we moved on to a couple more. We looked at how we fared. We had a Stoke experiment. How do we fare compared to America? Stoke was an interesting experiment. It um, wasn't set up particularly well. No bypass, not a trauma system. An ivory tower in isolation. It's not going to work. And they compared Stoke compared to America and still found we did really badly and more patients are dying in the UK than would die in America or in trauma system or in Australia. Keep getting up to date, we had ATLS. ATLS made fantastic changes, fantastic improvement in care in the hospital, Uh, but still worse results than a a lot of the rest of the world. Then we had this, which we were involved in in 2007 and CPOD reports Trauma, who cares? I think that's a good thing. It's not an awful lot of people at, the, at that time. But still showing that uh, in about 60, 70% of cases, the care uh, was, was categorised as uh, poor by peer review. So um, I don't think that was terribly successful, but we ignored that as well. And we ignored it until this one. Matron caring care in, in England. That's lawed office. Many people. Uh, but we had one little factor in our advantage at that time. Two things, really. One, British military in Afghanistan. They did a, uh, a parallel report in the British military. So the British military, was the care was second to none at that point in Afghanistan. So we could do it while right away, 20,000 miles from the UK, but at home, it was seen to be shocking. And these guys dragged in uh, Keith Willett and some other colleagues and gave them a really hard time about consultants playing golf. All the time, and not actually turning up and doing any work, uh, um, et cetera, et cetera. The other factor I'm racing through this was the Olympics. 2012 Olympics. Prior to the Olympics, we ignored every single report. Suddenly, we had the biggest uh, events in the world going to happen in the UK and the biggest potential for terrorism going to happen in the UK. Strangely, suddenly, it became mandatory virtually overnight, that we needed trauma systems in the UK from the 1st of April 2012. Strange. So the MPLEX has done an awful lot for us, because I don't think without that would have just ignored us and ignored the rest of the reports. In the East Midlands, we were slightly ahead of the game. We saw what was going to happen. We knew the debate, the evidence was coming, and the momentum was there. Uh, and we set up uh, a group from the Strategic Health Authority looking at regionalising trauma care. And you can see that... Maybe you won't have been able to see, but the very last line of all those reports is one saying Nottingham will be the first major trauma centre outside of London. So, National Audits Office, uh, Keith Willits was, was appointed as the National Trauma Czar. He's gone on to uh, even greater things since. Split the country into areas and decided we are going to regionalise trauma care. So that doesn't, that, what that means, I'll go into... In a, in, a, in a minute or two, but it's setting up an inclusive trauma system, which is why I think is so important. And Nick was here to talk about the pre-hospital thing. so he's very right, you know, we need it to chain of care all the way through. At the moment, we're doing huge things, front end, pre-hospital, significant things. And I'll tell you what we've done in Nottingham shortly, in the middle. And we've still got a hell of a lot of work to do in rehabilitation. It's really poor. Uh, with neuro-rehabilitation and specifically musculoskeletal rehabilitation in this country, in this region, is really poor. And we've got a lot of work still to do that. So you know, the journey's not finished yet. We've still got things to do. So we were up first. Um, we led the way. Um, uh, myself and Bob Winter, many will know, we were appointed as um, regional advisors in a joint capacity. Uh, good, go- good cop, bad cop, I think, a lot of the time. I don't know who was the good cop and who was the bad cop. <clears throat> but between the two of us, we managed to talk to most people, I and mean, one or other of us would normally get on with with one person and the other person it would normally not get on, so we just sent the right people to the right things. Um, and we produced a business case for Nottingham. We produced a regional plan. We went and spoke to an awful lot of people. We did a lot of uh, patient public engagement events. Bob did most of those. Um, interestingly, probably not a person I've chosen just into most of those, but he did them what we were trying to deliver, and what a regional trauma network is, and I'll leave back to it. it's not the ivory tower, it's not a hospital in isolation, it's a, it is a chain of care so our view, what we're trying to do is maximise the delivery of trauma resources not take the patient to the closest available hospital, but to consolidate the skills in, in in centres which have got enough resource with human resource, financial resource to look after patients appropriately so just taking you to the the local emergency department, you're not going to get the best results. We've shown that all over the world and suddenly we decided that we were going to do that. Again, here the third point, although I'm sure you know, Nick will agree with this, get the right patient to the right place at the right time to use the right definitive care, getting the experts there and we developed uh, sort of a Fair nutrition, I haven't spoke model. So, you know, not again, this is the develop, model we developed. We called, decided to call it a major trauma sensor rather than a level one sensor. The rest of the country followed us. The rest of the country followed an awful lot of what we, what we did, including the times we had for bypass, which, um, so where we did in at the moment, if you're within 45 minutes of the major trauma center you'll go straight to the major trauma centre. If you're further away from that, you'll go, for a second, you'll go for a pit stop and a secondary transfer, and the 45 minutes really is, is based on Bob and I sticking a fin- finger in the air and sort of guessing. So, well, an hour sounds a long, like a long time, doesn't it? And I'm sure we could survive half an hour. So uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> no such thing as evidence-based medicine. So we set up this in the Nottingham with the major trauma centre in the Midland Trauma Units, providing care, and as we roll out, to the whole of the rest of the region, Population of about 4.4 million people in the East Midlands all of which we cared for, some around the edges, the so North Hats of Ketchum now going south, around the edge of the region, perhaps going north. But essentially looking after that formerly patient population, bring the patients to where the expertise is, working with our pre-hospitifiers, EMAS, EMIX, and other colleagues at heli-services as well to move those patients appropriately. So what have we done at NUH? Now, I guess we are. we've been... Tremendously supported by the, the senior management team. They really saw that the trauma, major trauma was a really good thing for this organisation. I'm trying to allude to why I believe it was a really good thing and what we've tried to do with the investment that we've pulled in for this in the next few slides. This uh, paper from the Royal London, who are, you know, uh, were really the first trauma centre in the UK, really says it all. It's not, just a, it's not a hospital specialities. It's about pulling a hospital together and getting those specialties that work together. And I will say at the end how I think we've achieved that even the very short, short uh, time that we've been live. So it's a multi-specialty hospital on a single site, optimised the provision of trauma care, definitive care for most seriously injured patients, and we need to look at responsibility across the network. So when I say that Patients in secondary transfer, and our, uh, provider units with Mabel, Chesterfield, and uh, Mansfield, they're rolling out to, to Leicester, Derby, and Lincolnshire. If they phone us up and say, We are sending a patient to you, we say thank you very much, and they're our responsibility. We don't say, Hey, we haven't got a bed. We're not having them. They're our responsibility. They've made the decision that their care is better off with us, with my colleagues, the system, my colleagues have put together. We'll look after that patient different from how we normally work. So what's the vision? You have to have a vision. Business course is coming into play. We reckon we ought to be established the leading major trauma centre in the next five years. Biggest is not always best, but I'm a surgeon. At the end of the day, we'll probably, we will be also the biggest major trauma centre in the, uh, in, in the UK in the next five years. size, no, you know, no good without quality. We will be the best because I think we are building at NUH's major trauma centre on a huge background huge, we've got to step up from where we were, we've had people like Dima Sesberg we've had people like Chris Moran who's still here, Bob Winter who've really banged the drum for major trauma care in the Eastman and certainly at NUH Queen's Medical Centre for years everywhere else standing still. we have the legacy of them doing 10 years, 15 years of hard graft setting set systems up, attracting people in to work to, as, our first, as our first step up. And we're incredibly lucky to still have those people on board. So where are we now? This is our 2008-2011 data. Yeah, this is our 2008-2011 data with a red blob in the middle. This is all the hospitals receiving trauma at that point, 252 uh, emergency departments in the UK. We are firmly in the middle of the pack We've improved. I'll show you another graph later, which shows how we improved. We've got tight error bars compared to the other centres. But not a place we want to be. We want the Eastman's to have the best trauma care in the country. So that's our baseline position, which is good, because it's always, you know, I'd have a hard job to prove my value if we were sitting at the far right of the graph. We've got opportunity here. So what have we, my colleagues, uh, Miriam who's in the audience, Ben Oliver is one of our consultants, Uh, major trauma center consultants as well what are we doing, what are we trying to do that's new, we're trying to set up a brand new service we have set up a brand new service so it's very difficult to do in the NHS from scratch we're also making multi-professional so I strongly believe in that multi-specialty, because I strongly believe in that, we are so specialized nowadays in hospital hospital care, and certainly teaching center care can't practice this I can't do this on my own now I regularly operate with, you know, with a, an orthopaedic surgeon. I've mean, you know, with, with Dave, Dave Hahn, Darren Fulbright, a pelvic surgeon, within the last month in two or three cases in theatre, something we would never have done two or three years ago. Three, four weeks ago, we had five consultants all in, involved in care of the patient, all in theatre at the same time, talking, communicating, sharing the care of that patient. It's a phenomenal difference. It's making it... Uh, a specialty hospital, not just a hospital of different specialties coming together. Who are we looking after? Most seriously injured. So people have got a chance of dying more than 10%. Lewis fits into this very much. We are building a system, and we're still building it, for people like Lewis. To put us in a better position than we were in 1989 at Kegworth, which I avoided by about five minutes because I was on the motorway. I got—I was the first; We were the first car stopped on the motorway heading up, which is interesting to see that video. But we're building for people like Lewis. We're building for patients and population of the East Midlands to give them the best they possibly can, the best chance of survival. Not just best chance of survival, best chance of return to functional life. And that's one of our big research aims, is to look at the long-term outcomes. What are we doing that's improving their outcomes long-term, their chances of getting back to work? So... What have we done so far? We've gone live to two centres. Uh, as always, we were told we could do it over four years, and then on day two, we told we had to do it in 12 months. That's the NHS for you that we all know and love. We're still step-wising it. Right? And we've got, in, in under 12 months' time, by September of next year, we'll be fully live across the system with about 900 major trauma patients, about 2,000 trauma resuscitations a year. That's big by most standards. And we're stepping up the care. It's going to go through what we're trying to do. So once we started, we've now got major trauma consultants on board. We have fellowship opportunities. To, uh, one fellow at the moment who's post CCT fellow learning trauma care. Learning holistic trauma care and multi-specialty. We've got case managers who've employed to liaise with the families to make that link to follow the patient through, to provide continuity. We link very closely to rehabilitation. We have the most multi-professional, multi-specialty ward round you can imagine, three times a week, that rehabilitation consultants, dietitian on there, physiotherapists on there, uh, and and consultants from different backgrounds. And we're all part of this network. We're working collaboratively across the East Midlands. Well, the key elements, what we set out to do, very briefly, I had some aims and objectives. When I sat down and wrote the business case with one of my colleagues, it was to make sure that every penny of NHS money was spent had more than one benefit. No point just doing things to major trauma center because the opportunities were too big just to focus too now. So we're improving our ED consultants workforce to give them opportunity to work further across the times. A trauma is 0.2% of the ED work workload. So our ED consultants have the opportunity there to look after more of our patients in Nottingham. There's an awful lot of them and they work very hard. We're increasing that capacity. We've increased nursing in the emergency department as well. As a result of that, we've reduced time in the emergency department by over an hour, statistically significant within the first few months. Radiology, we've got the radiologist part of the team. We have regionally agreed CT protocols. 65% of people have a scan within 30 minutes, something unheard of a few months ago. We can regionally agree on the transfer protocols, the image viewing, we're very close to just being able to uh, the major trauma consultants can view images from anywhere around the region within the next few weeks. Uh, reduction in time for spinal clearance for patients in critical care from eight to eight days to thirty-six hours. In theatres, I was very keen that we increase our emergency capacity. We've done that. We continue to do that. We're putting um, um, resource into our you know, orthopaedic re- reconstruction side of things as well. Continue trying to recruit to increase that coverage. We've got We now got anaesthetists with an interest in major trauma, in evening sessions uh, um, uh, as well. So we're increasing our cover. Critical care, we're increasing our beds over the next 18 months. About a 75% increase overall since I, in the last two years of critical care beds at NUH, which has been required for years. Without trauma, it would not happen. Is using it as a lever to make some of these things happen. Level 1, Queen's Open is the most strong ward. First time I've got Level 1 at Queen's Campus, which is the step down from critical care before you get to the ward. Never had the opportunity to do that before we have got it in. It's working really well, reducing time in EDD, stepping down patients and freeing up critical care beds early. Put these people in place and mention those. Rehabilitation and repatriation. I started this talk really, you know, from my aspect, at the end. This is the bit that we need to work really hard on now. But we've got a rehabilitation prescription, so everybody who's seen and then said, these are your, going to be your needs when you leave here. These are, this is what going to, you're going to require to get back to functional, quality life. And that's what we're here to do. So we do that with our multiple professional team, a rehabilitation consultant, an ongoing assessment, and we will be following these people up long-term and, re- and then reverse engineering our pathway to see what we can do. This is key, major trauma education, prevention and research. Prevention is absolutely part of what, as a trauma centre, we have to do. We want to be unemployed major trauma, sensor, major trauma consultants. It's got a regional collaborative learning network, a, regional, uh, a whole meeting uh, from an education point of view. Myself uh, and colleagues, and Ben in and the room, looking at our research strategy from early next year across the pathway. We're benchmarking against colleagues. So what are we doing to, so far to date? What have we set up? Are we doing any good? What, is, what did Lewis, and it will, I've got a slightly long video clip, I didn't realise it was quite as long, if you bear with us in a minute or two. These are our numbers, trauma cause and injury severity scores. Sixteen, we're halfway there. These will double a little bit. We now, as you always have to do, dashboard, and it's it'll be small. But we're on the little triangle on the on, on the plot. We every quarter, we have a dashboard from our results to show how we do compared to other people. We're always right of centre. We're doing well. There's still room to go there. This is. Really, over the last few years, this is where we started in 08, 09, this is 10, 11, on a rolling outcome. We just made tremendous strides even before the trauma centre happened. I have no doubt that we'll continue to move to the right to improve our system that patients like Lewis can land it, it. But we've got more work to do. What I can share is that. Since we've had the trauma system in the last six months, when we look at our data, look at the nationally agreed data, time TARN data, what we have is 25 unexpected survivors, of which Lewis is one. Now, the London system had 50 over 12 months, and we've got 25 in our, you know, the whole of London, for four, four centres. So we're doing something right. I think we've got an awful long way to go. We, do, we believe that there are 60 lives a year in the East Midlands if by the regional system, by linking out with Nick and other colleagues and the pre-hospital people, getting our rehab squared away, that we can save. And that's why I guess we're really passionate about this. Not only that, it's also the wins for the rest of the hospital. Um, that you know, The hospital is enjoying the rest of the emergency care, which is something we enjoy. doing. So, you're not focusing on the right, it's the worst picture of me. Um, these are just some of the people involved in the care of other people, perhaps other people in this room, other surgical teams. This is just a, you know, a snapshot, a vignette of the people involved in the care of one patient. There's 34 people here. There's probably 300 people involved in the care of one individual patient. He's a, I would say these are just the best-looking ones, but uh, yeah, there's a few people that are perhaps they're not the best-looking ones. Um, these are just people. You know, this is the number of people involved in the care of an individual patient to make a difference to him, to his family, and to his future. And we've had lots of good press, lots of press at the moment, um, you know, from Neil, from other people. And people come back to visit our unit, families come back to visit us and say already to say thank you for what we've, what we've done. So, you know, I am tremendously proud of what we've achieved to set this up so far and the journey you know, that, that we are on. We've got another few years to do that. I'm going to show you a, a video clip, uh, apologies a little bit longer than I thought, um, from... That we made as an organisation for our annual public meeting, which really tries, I hope, to pull together everything that Nick and I have talked about, from the pre-hospital aspect to this, this to Lewis arriving in our organisation, uh, and to him uh, now uh, with the help of uh, and again further work he's had recently by neurosurgical colleagues who looked after him tremendously, tremendously well. Um, so he's got a, 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 full, a full life ahead of him. So if you bear with us for a few minutes.
3: involved in a serious road-traffic accident
4: in the town. Uh, what I was told of, what I have uh, a vague memory of, was I was uh, hit by a Tesco lorry.
3: Um, they were quite insistent that we needed to go to the hospital as soon as possible, and they told us they had been taken to the Queen's Medical Centre.
4: So uh, I got on the, the back wheels, uh, rolled around. I thought I was actually run over, but I rolled around that's how most, of my okay, bones and everything got broken and cut and uh, I ended up uh, pretty much dead in the road. Very... Do you want to have you over to the police officer? Excuse me? I've got an ambulance on the phone. Do you want? he had been crossed under a uh, lorry. Hello, this
3: is Lee. Hello. And he had uh, a bee in his head. We uh, he Hi, uh, yeah, he's just about conscious and breathing. We've got a very terrible leg injury. And the one just crashed into your feet and left to the side. Completely ripped off the right side of his leg at a certain His skin is been ripped off. His body in a, in a sort of band. He has like a fruit uh, A lot of blood. He has handed it as thin as possible. His bowel has been damaged inside his body. And if it just him that's been injured? Oh. yeah. With my bladder being ripped off from the, um, the pipe that comes out to the outside. Is anyone trying oh, Just wait a moment because I think she's not breathing. I'm going to have to get off the stage. Let's get cold and <laughs> And we two kind of caress at the time due to loss awesome of blood.
4: And uh, a lady from McDonald's who works there came out and gave me CPR for the
3: ambulance got there and revived me. So, me and my wife, Kim, jumped in the car and went straight up there. I phoned my oldest son, who actually lives in Nottingham, um, to meet us on the way. And um, when we got to the hospital, Philip, his brother, was already there. And we were directed to the relatives room in the uh, the A&E department. They explained to us that there had been a lot of people working on him and that they weren't sure and his blood pressure was very really low, and they weren't sure what um, would happen next, but they said that if his blood pressure sort of stabilised, then they would look to um, see about scanning him to find out the severity of his injuries. He told us that he had lots of tubes in him, and um, that uh, you know, if we wanted to spend a, um, a, a brief period of time with him, but to make it brief, because they had a lot to do, which we accepted readily, um, and we went in trauma team sort of stood back um, they tried to sort of shoot over Lewis, most of Lewis's activity but we could see that it in a busy area and he was uh, intubated and we um, just sort of held his hand for a bit uh, I whispered in his ear to uh, to keep fighting and to, to work with the medical staff. My
2: role at that stage was uh, as the lead trauma consultant. It's essentially a um, I guess liaising with everyone and, and bringing everyone together really to coordinate all the different services who are doing their bits and, and trying to make sure it all comes together in one cohesive package to make the best of it because sometimes we need to be individual specialties so he would have been seeing neurosurgery, general surgery, plastic surgery, orthopaedic
1: surgery as well as the critical care doctors So all of those different specialties are doing their
2: thing for him and sometimes even when each specialty is doing... Everything perfectly, it doesn't all kind of come together, I guess, in a cohesive package for the patient. And I mean, that's what the major trauma role and the major trauma centres try to promote, and, and you know, make it work perfectly so that each service is doing a great job, but then together they're all doing a great job too. It's all about looking after people, like those people have life-changing or life and devastating injuries. We know that getting into us, seeing that the expert care from our surgeons here, from our critical care teams, from the major trauma ward where we are today, will have a huge impact on his, on his outcome, on his future life. An opportunity to, you we know, took after from here, if we didn't have the opportunity to come here, we would not, you know, do as well as it is now, so that's why it's so important to us and as clinical teams, we've been so keen to do all this, to look after people exactly like those who have horrific injuries, the ones that with the right team of people, we can do an awful lot to try and put those right and to return to a good quality of life. I think by
3: about 10 o'clock, something like that, maybe a little bit later, 10 o'clock at night, um, we were taken into intensive care i met by a lovely nurse intensive care. I not remember her name. Um, for my wife, to see if you remember. But um, she explained everything. She explained that the tubes that were in. I counted, I think, about 12 at least tubes from either his airway to IVs to monitoring leads, um, cannulas. He um, had a fixator pulling his, his, his thigh down uh, on his leg, um, he had a huge bandage on his head because of the swelling. Um, he had a pin through, yeah, pulling it down on his leg. I'm trying to think what else it was. For. It was just, it was just pretty, uh, pretty, pretty chaotic for us, but um, we were just happy that uh, he was in intensive care.
4: Um, down here, which is hopefully going off today, I have two skin which are my latest ones. The liver ones. And they're up here on my hip. And they are exactly like this one, but one other side. So it's not too bad. So these four went, started to move all up here because I had a cut, which started from here and went all the way along and made it right mess of the flesh, as I'm told, up to here, up to my waist. They had, um, they had to take out a bit of my skull. So if you can see it here, and the scar goes all around. And it's actually quite, quite self-conscious, what I am about it, so that's why I wear the cap. That's how I never normally wear hats. But they're going to look at filling it with a titanium plate in about three months. The, the newest skin grafts are actually beyond here, and that's the, the, the final skin graft surgery. But it's loose because the surgeon wanted me to air it. So as I do, the cut here was made all around. And for the the colostomy bags we fitted. And I have that now for the next four months.
1: Um,
2: we've seen the results of your study, and um, so choose uh, two minutes. By the reasonizing trauma cats, especially centres, we can save an extra 20% of lives. So across East London, that means every year uh, uh, about 100 lives will be will be saved by having a major trauma centre in place and and the system behind it um, than would be the case otherwise. We went live at the very beginning of uh, April 2012. That's after about three or four years of of hard work, both by
3: NUH and across the whole of the East Midlands region. I've known
2: for a long time that by having regional major trauma centres, centres that look after most severely injured patients, that we can improve the outcome. What I mean by that is that more people will survive the most horrific injuries by centralising their care to organisations like NUH, where we've got all the skills and the resources to look after them
4: optimally? Uh, Well, I went to ICU, and I have no memory of that at all, but I've been told by, you know, my brother, my dad, relatives, and and my girlfriend, that, you know, the care in there was exceptional. They have said that as a nurse, by your bed every time. I mean, I don't remember any of it, but I've been told that it was fantastic. It was a massive relief.
3: One, that you know he's going to recover. The issue then is you, you almost get off one train and get onto another train. And this train's going in a different direction. And it's about, um, OK, how is he going to recover? What special support will he need? What will he be able to achieve? What won't he be able to achieve? So again, you, you, you know, you just, you, you're on a different route with different worries, but they're as not as concerning, I suppose, as the worries before. But at the same time, they are still very concerning. We gave Lewis when he was in hospital two aims. First one was to get home. Second one was to get back to work. He's achieved the first aim, and there's the rehabilitation now. Along with outpatient appointments and additional surgery, which 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 will come, and then to get back to work, so we're happy for that
4: going in that direction. But nothing, staff done a fantastic job, Mr. Forward as well. has been to see me most days. I mean, it's a brilliant. So I'm here today for them.
2: So I think. There is a story, and I hope you've pulled this all thing together. we've tried to achieve um, from the hospital side, through to our hospital, through to rehabilitation, how pulling all these colleagues together, how to, by centralising care, by bringing close and real surgery, through external surgery, critical care, and CSU, the list on, together with those skills and in their place, really gives us an opportunity to, uh, to change lives and to improve the care and CSU in the Across the easement, from sides, Rehabilitation. So uh, I'm sure we're more than happy, Nick, while I take any questions uh, that you might have.
5: Good evening. Thank you very much. Um, well, wasn't that inspirational? Uh, I can tell you one way that Nick debriefs. He comes in and tells us about it. And we are there in absolute awe. And how many of you are medical students? Have we got any medical students here? Yeah. Don't, please don't think that all GPs do that. Nick's a very special person. Um, I think that about three things, hopefully, that you'll take home. One being that uh, med what's the role of MedKai? MedKai is to support the Nottingham medical community. And I hope that this demonstrates this in, in its phase. We've celebrated two local celebrities here. Uh, we're supporting our community here. The work they're doing is absolutely phenomenal. And particularly that Lewis. Lewis is, was at school with my son in the same year as my son at school. This is so close to home. It could happen to any, you know any of us or our families. And Lewis's granny... Uh, was a receptionist at the Cape of surgery and she's retired now but she's she's become a patient again and uh, she's hugged Nick before now in the consulting room to say thank you you know it's all very we're family doctors aren't we and this is a really good demonstration and those of you doing who are the medical students or the junior doctors please think Nottingham's a wonderful place to be we're trying to nurture people to stay in Nottingham here's a wonderful uh, example of that the two uh, doctors I obviously know a lot about Nick, Um, and what I just wanted to use it to illustrate was how, from Little Acorns, uh, we develop, how things develop. I first met Nick when he started the GP's training scheme here, and I was just finishing. And he did a wine, he mentioned wine, didn't he? He did a wine tasting for the VTS. And I thought, oh, gosh, this guy's got a lot of skills, uh, and he's very sociable. So I handed over the social secretary role of the VTS to him. Um, and then, and talked to him about Kegworth and things. And then he came and joined us at the surgery as a trainee. And then I needed a maternity locum. And I was, when this accident happened in, in Kegworth, I was 34 weeks pregnant. So I, didn't, I was the only one who didn't go up to the plane. I stayed at home and looked after the practice. But Nick then did my maternity locum. Um, and subsequently joined the practice so that's how and again for you who are in training positions how little things it was the wine tasty I think in Nick's case that got him involved and, and the keg was disaster and such like and how things develop and I'm sure that Adam you must be similar things that I don't know about that uh, so um, Nick was on the radio this morning talking about emix on Radio Nottingham and apparently you can get at it through uh, the website um, so uh, that's a little, little, little bit about Nick, a uh, very compassionate person and a wonderful partner. Uh, Adam. Now, I've never met Adam before, <laughs> let alone to you this evening, so I thought, oh, I'll Google Adam. And that was very interesting. Guess how? Well, I just put in Adam Brooks, and we got, how many hits did we get? 38.5 million. <laughs> so. <apologize>. <laughs> So I went for the top 20, and I looked at the top 20, and of the top 20, 15 out of those 20 were were the Adam. They were were this Adam. Uh, And three of them relate to this evening, to the MedKai talk this evening. Anyway, one of the ones that Adam's got on is is LinkedIn, and that was very useful. (laughs) Told me all about you being uh, qualified from Sheffield in 92. Nick qualified in Sheffield as well. Um, And also mentioned the Nottingham Business School, and I'm really interested. You must share with us sometime... how you manage to get all your business skills, because I think we're missing a trick here. You've got it. Other people should have it too. Um, There's lots about other things that you do, like you write books, uh, emergency surgery, ballistic trauma, uh, lots of things on there. So you can always Google them and find out yourself. So so really, I wanted to just say uh, thank you to them. We also look after ourselves. uh, For those of us who are... uh, consultants and GPs, there's a reflective revalidation template outside and that links to our Nigel here because you're the lead nationally and so we can actually make use of this, this session as well. And lastly, I'd just like to say, please drive ho- home very safely because uh, we want you to have a um, peaceful sleep tonight. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you, Caroline. Um, just a reminder, the next meeting of Medkai is on Wednesday the 12th of December, and uh, we then will be entertained by Dame Carol Black, who used to be the uh, president of the Royal College of Physicians, uh, subsequently became uh, Director of Health and Work at Department of Health, and is going to tell us something about her reflections. On uh, health of the working age population and some of her current work uh, that she 's now doing in various different roles, so I hope you 'll uh, come on the 12th of December before Christmas. I can 't promise mince pies, but you never know. Um, so hopefully you 'll have a nice, safe journey home and we 'll miss the major Trauma center on the way home. Thank you very much. <laughs>